Today's special federal election recap episode of Socially Democratic is proudly presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about uh, communications? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading planner for law firm, is looking for an internal communications specialist based in Melbourne. There's a lot of variety in this role and responsibilities include developing and implementing engaging and purposeful internal communications across the firm's 33 Larry Bird offices, uh, as well as assisting with employee engagement to achieve strategic goals to apply. Simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers, be part of change and fight for fair, apply now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out each Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues uh, of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And as you know, currently over the course of the next six weeks, we are doing a recap of the week that was in the federal election as Australia decides on who will be the government that will lead them into the next three years. And I'll be joined again today by the Executive Director for Per Capita, Emma Dawson, and the former federal member for Batman, David Feeney. And this week we're going to break down the last week of the campaign in which our leader, Anthony Albanese, was in isolation. But that's okay because other people stepped up and knocked it out of the ballpark. Meanwhile, the Tories were having an absolute torrid time of the campaign. So um, Emma and David will be on the show this week to unpack all of that and more. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts uh, when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review um, on podcast Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Uh, and for all the updates, follow us at Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Rightio, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Thursday, Arvo, on the land of the Wurundjeri people, and we would like to welcome you to our third of six Federal Election Weekly Recap episodes here at Socially Democratic. To help me break down week three of the federal campaign, I am once again joined by the Executive Director for Per Capita, Emma Dawson. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Stephen. And former Senator, Member for Batman, and former ALP Campaign Director, David Feeney. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Um, okay, week, week three. Um, uh, before I dive into the questions, actually, I, I, I want to get a sense from both of you. I, I, I don't know whether it's because of all of these short weeks we're having with the cluster of public holidays that are being sort of slammed together with the Easter long weekend and then Anzac Day long weekend, but I just feel like that this week in particular in the campaign was quite a slow week, and when I was sort of pulling together questions uh, for this week's um, episode, I just started to sort of, I struggled to think of uh, sort of standout moments in the campaign that we could that we could talk about. I don't doubt that we're going to be able to fill an hour's worth of content anyway. Um, but I, I just found it was quite a weird week in the campaign. I wonder if it's sort of that sort of halfway through kind of you know as they talk about it in basketball, like down the stretch, second quarter, third quarter, before we get to all the action in the final quarter, kind of vibe, David. To you first, what, what, how, do you, do you get a sense that the campaign's a bit slow at the moment from both sides or? No, I mean, I think the pace did change um, because Albo obviously came down with COVID uh, and, and so that meant the Labor Party re-engineered its campaign uh, and made a virtue out of necessity by showcasing others, um, but, uh, you know, good luck favours the bold, and I think it worked for Labor in part because, um, as we predicted last week in last week's show, the Solomon Islands issue grew and grew and grew to the point that um, the Prime Minister himself avoided the media on Saturday. Scott Morrison um, avoided doing a press conference on Saturday. And so, um, as you say, key public holidays... Albo essentially trapped in his house, um, but the 
Labor's sort of default to other faces and other voices worked because Morrison himself vacated the field as he fled the scene of the crime. Um, Maurice Payne kept up her long-standing policy of pioneering stealth technology and being invisible <laughs> to the Australian people. And so um, Anthony's absence didn't look that odd or, unrem- or remarkable because the government fled. Um, but the issues I still think were barrelling down, and we'll obviously discuss those over the next hour, but uh, the issues were barrelling down on the on the government. And in particular, the sort of kaleidoscope of Labor faces didn't look out of place when we saw people like Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan mm. um, and a bunch of Tories under pressure from Greens who like capitalism in the inner city. Suddenly the conservative side of politics was populated by a lot of different faces as well. Um, so Labor's position didn't look anarchic. It looked, um, in fact, by contrast, well-coordinated. So it was a very different week with a very different pace, uh, but I think um, uh, it was action-packed nonetheless. Emma, your thoughts on the the, the last seven days since we, since we spoke? Obviously, we'll, we'll deep dive into Elbow and uh, getting uh, COVID and whatnot, but just in terms of pacing and, and tone and tenor of the campaign for the last week, how, how did you feel it went? Yeah, look, I, I agree with David. I think there was that pace shift, um, but I think it served Labor well. And I think that what we've seen uh, has happened is, um, you know, Labor's been able to, to play to its strengths here. I found it hilarious the other day when I heard Morrison sort of start to say, look, this isn't this election isn't just about who you want as Prime Minister. It's about who do you want as Defence Minister? Who do you want as Home Affairs Minister? And he just sort of trailed off because... Like, that question doesn't help him. Um, and that's that's happened a couple of times now. Um, whereas Labor, I think David's right. You know, we have uh, Penny Wong front and centre talking about the Pacific and our international relations and our, our, our diplomacy. That's completely... Um, that com- makes complete sense to the electorate. Um, similarly, having, you know, Richard Miles at those uh, Anzac Day commemorations, Richard's in his element at things like that. Um, and so I think the pace, yes, it changed a bit, but... On the whole, um, I think it suited Labor and Labor was able to tailor that pace to its own ends, if anything. It, it felt very much as though um, Labor was d- directing the pace and the target and the focus of the campaign this week for the first time. The day after we posted last week's episode, uh, the news then came out that um, Labor leader Anthony Albanese had contracted COVID um, and had to be isolated for seven days. I wonder if it was a temptation by the Liberals or the government to change the isolation laws and make it like uh, 33 days or something just to lock away <laughs> for the rest of the campaign. That probably would have happened in a far greater totalitarian state. Um, David, with your campaign manager hat on, thinking about the adjustments that you need to make when this happens, I mean, this is so, you know, this is, I guess this is the kind of environment we live in in this COVID world, something that you and I as campaign folk have not had to deal with previously. Um, and looking at the adjustments, Adjustments that Labor made. Go into a bit of detail about what you saw and um, and and what worked for what worked for Labor. Did they overcome a, a challenge that they probably we would normally not have to deal with in a campaign? Uh, well, it was a unique challenge. Our our system lends itself to presidential style campaigning, and suddenly our presidential candidate was um, isolated for seven days. But Labor came through it with flying colours in part because um, Anthony was still able to do some key media appearances from his home, and so he stayed in the game and in, in he stayed in the frame. But also, uh, through a wonderful serendipity, um, the major issues of the week, um, foreign affairs, the China threat, defence, um, and then climate change and carbon emissions meant that Penny Wong, um, Jason Clare is one of the Labor Party's spokespeople, um, Chris Bowen, um, Richard Miles, these faces appeared um, for Labor um, in their portfolio areas. So they didn't look like strange graphs onto the campaign. They were speaking to their portfolios and they all performed well. Um, And because of the circumstances, uh, it it didn't look like Labor had lost faith in its leader and was trying to augment a leader with others to compensate for 
any imagining failings on his part. It was obviously these characters had stepped up to the plate because Albo had COVID. So that was completely explicable and understood, and their presence as a consequence was natural, explicable, and I think they all performed superbly, and, and, and we'll mm. talk about that, I'm sure. By contrast, um, the, the coalition found itself with a whole bunch of different faces um, speaking for it too, but it wasn't a script, it wasn't a plan, it was a, a, so the, the rolling catastrophe of their inner-city campaigns, their, uh, the Prime Minister having to talk about New South Wales pre-selections, um, Solomon Islands blowing up in their face, Mm. Um, uh, so all of these things were, wheels were falling off the coalition and more coalition faces were jumping into the camera frame uninvited by the Liberal campaign, I'm sure. Um, and so Labor didn't look chaotic. It looked like it was uh, managing the conversation and putting the right people up for the issues um, and the coalition didn't have any of that elegance. It's actually an insight into, imagine if... Uh, Scott Morrison was struck down with COVID in the mm. remaining part of the campaign, <laughs> how they would respond to that. Because, I mean, one of the things that when on reflection of the 2019 campaign, one of the strengths that people thought about the 2019 campaign from a Liberal Party perspective was that the campaign was built on the back of Scott Morrison. Mm. And if you were, you know, it's like going into a critical final in a sporting team and you remove your best player, and now you're asking a whole bunch of other journeymen to step up. It would be, I think it would be fascinating to watch the Liberal Party try and manage to deal with that. Well, who um, have they got, right? I mean, you know, they've, they've got Dutton and, and Frydenberg who have reasonable name recognition. Uh, neither of them, uh, you know, they're, they're popular within their own constituencies, but they don't have, Frydenberg possibly, although he's doing his best to trash his brand at the moment, don't have broad appeal. But they certainly don't have that ability to sort of present a really a front bench with a real depth of talent, you know, and, and an ability to speak not only to their own portfolios authoritatively but to the broader issues. There's no, there's no stumbles, you know. So um, if Morrison went down, you'd have a campaign fronted by Barnaby Joyce, Peter Dutton and Frydenberg who's, you know, going to have a, to spend a lot of time in his own seat. Um, you don't have that kind of array of very well-recognised, um, authoritative, thoughtful people and obviously I'm biased but I think that the the community can see that too when Penny Wong stands up on the Pacific when Jason Clare stands up as, as spokesman um, when Christina Keneally you know stands up to talk about the cashless welfare card they're they're cutting through they've got their own message and as as David said they performed incredibly well the Liberal Party does have a structural problem here um, mm. the, the, in 2019 there was a wave of retirements mm. and Turnbull Abbott Civil War, meant that a lot of their key people also left. So yep. they won the 2019 election on the back of the Prime Minister's performance, but Scott Morrison um, knew then and has operated since as a one-man band because they have this dearth of talent. It's a, yes. it's a serious problem for them. They cannot populate a cabinet with enough capable people. Mm. Um, the, the people that Labor's put forward are capable. Now, they may not be household names, but we know when someone like Christina Kennelly or um, Jason Clare or Richard Miles is put in front of the camera that they're going to know their portfolios and perform. They are experienced. So Albo can delegate with a lot more confidence than Morrison can. He, Morrison knows and has known ever since he became um, leader of the Liberal Party um, that he has to keep most of his people in the witness protection program because they can't be trusted to speak. And that's a, that's, a, that's a structural failing of his own creation, right? So a lot of the talented, moderate Liberals, the Julie Bishops, the Christopher Pines that left at the last election did so partly because they thought, you know, they were going to lose, mainly because they thought they were going to lose, but they've also not got a lot of time for Morrison. And Morrison has put into those senior positions people that he personally relies on, people like Stuart Robert. And we're seeing this play out with pre-selections in, in New South Wales now as well. He's actively recruiting people who are like him. Um, and that means that they're not terribly necessarily good politicians or, or very good at, at, uh, at, their, at the policy work that's needed. So I think he has to take quite a lot of responsibility for the structural um, problems the Liberal Party is facing and that I think will only get worse after this election, whether mm. they win or lose. 
not all his own fault, though. Uh, you know, the Catherine wheel that is the National Party yes. <laughs> uh, just lights up on him and there's really nothing he can do except watch the show. Mm. Um, and you know, Barnaby Joyce and the train wreck of the National Party room is something he can't control but constantly undermines him. Yeah, true. It's to your point there, Emma, and it's only going to get worse for the conservative side of politics for the centre right. Because if you look at the people that they're, the, the, the pipeline of uh, future and current candidates for the Libs is shocking. It's a collection of um, ex coppers yep. or ex defence people or failed business people uh, who couldn't turn a dollar, couldn't make a profit in their own jobs, so they've decided to go into politics. And they're absolute mouth breeders. breeders. Mm. It's just mm. uh, appalling to look at what's going on with our democracy. It is. Um, when you see some of these um, fruit loops that they're running it, uh, in critical marginal states. And the talent, right, the, the next generation talent is actually running as teal independents. The, the people that would have been the next Ian McPhee or the next Peter Costello in, in, in um, Goldstein or Higgins are running as independents. Allegra Spender um, in Wentworth, um, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, there are some really blue blood liberal families who have gone, well, this party doesn't represent me anymore. So I think, you know, that that um, exchange of op-eds between Ted Bailey and his son Rob uh, in the in the Nine Papers really spelled that out really clearly. You know, there's a, there's a view amongst some very frustrated moderate liberals that uh, these independents are running against the next generation of, of liberal leaders, but then there's a view amongst younger and, and perhaps um, less you know, less um, senior people in the party, that actually your party's the one that's that's abandoned us, the next generation of smaller Liberal leaders. So there are real structural problems ahead for the coalition and, and, and that's not even touching on what is rapidly, I think, emerging to be a complete breakdown between the Nats and the Libs. It's been coming for a long time. Um, it was evident back under, in the Gillard years. It was quite easy to play one party room off against the other in that election, in that in that uh, parliament. Um, and so they're going to have to reckon with that. And if they lose this election, they're going to have a lot of uh, bloodletting and a lot to deal with. And if they win, uh, if they win through some sort of minority government arrangement or, you know, God forbid, I think it's less likely they win a majority, um, they're, they're going to be so paralysed that there'll be even less governing done than there has been in the last three years. Well, now that we've given them a really good kick and I enjoyed it <laughs> that thoroughly, um, let's uh, what I would on to ask you guys about before we move this into some of the campaign policy stuff from, from the last seven days. Can we discuss, uh, you both mentioned a number of highlights um, of uh, shadow uh, cabinet members stepping up um, and filling the space left by Albo and um, and him catching COVID and being in isolation. The one that stood out for me was I thought Jason Clare's performance in that press conference. Um, maybe it was on the Friday or the or, or the Saturday. It was the um, Friday? Where, was it the Friday? Was it? Yeah. yeah. And he took it. His responses to a number of questions posed to him by journalists I thought were incredibly on point, succinct, and zeroed in on why. Folks should vote Labor in and vote the other mob out. I, the last sort of uh, points he sort of made, he said, you know, this government has no plan for the for a future. They've run out of profit. Instead of focusing on you, they're fighting amongst themselves. It was just, I, I just, and I just want to get your thoughts on the remarks from Jason, um, from, uh, Jason Clare. He smashed it out of the park. It's one of the best performances in an election campaign press conference I have seen in my lifetime, I would say, certainly in the last 10 years. Um, it was a masterclass. And, and he and Jason's, he's blessed, right? He's got that deep authoritative voice. He's a good-looking guy. There were women all over the country falling in love with Jason Clare last week. I got at least four text messages from friends going, who's this guy? I was like, oh, please catch up. Um, but he absolutely nailed it. And I think what it, it, it was perfectly timed for the true believers, right? There was, uh, he's, he's succeeded Paul Keating in that seat, well, eventually. Um, he's Keating-esque in his ability to deal with the media. He knew every journo's name. He was relaxed. He was comfortable. He didn't stutter. He didn't stammer. And I agree, Stephen, that bit at the end where he said, Australians don't throw governments out lightly and they don't do it often, but they do it for three reasons. And it's because they've run out of puff 
they've uh, they're too busy fighting themselves or they're incompetent and this government's the trifecta. It was an absolutely killer line. I'm sure very well workshopped with head office, but he delivered it and he delivered it brilliantly. And when he and he he also was a masterclass in how to turn the questioner in into you know, turn the question into what you want it to be it, without being so obvious as Morrison who goes, well, I reject your premise and your question, but just laugh, you know, are you the leader Australia needs? Ha, ha, ha. I'll tell you what, it's time for elbow. It's time to give elbow a go. He was absolutely on point. Now, whether that will convince a lot of swinging voters, I think it will. People would look and go, this guy's smart. Um, he's part of a good team. But the real thing it did, I think, was shore up the troops. It gave the true believers a kind of a, oh, yeah, we're on this, we've got this. You know, this this is a good team, this is a good message um, and we don't need to worry that Elbow's not going to be doing virtual campaigning for a week or so. Um, he's since recorded, Jason since recorded some of those grabs for, you know, radio ads as the spokesperson for the campaign and he's done those really well as well. Um, so, no, I just thought it was an absolute turning point. It was fantastic. I'm so glad you've said that. That they've grabbed those 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 audios that are used because he has a velvet voice. That's mm-hmm. if he doesn't do anything in politics ever again, the man should just record things because I'd buy anything from him. It's just it's oh, he just should do smooth. audio books, right? Okay. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, David. Any I think anything else to add there? Peter Hatcher described it as the voice of a sentencing judge. Um, <laughs> And uh, which I think is an apt description. I think I agree with all of that. I just note that Jason, um, <laughs> undeterred by complete success, has done it a few times since. Mm. Um, he, all of his press conferences uh, in recent days have been first rate. Mm. Um, and uh, just one addition, it's obviously been great for the troops, as Emma points out. I think it was also good for the gallery um, because it kept the gallery, it kept the chooks fed. Yeah. Um, and any sense inside the gallery that Labor was going to be fumbling around um, was dismissed by the strength of his performances and the performances of others. Um, so I, I think it played a very important role, um, maybe not so much out there in households, but in um, the media and in the gallery as they talk amongst themselves and amongst our own campaign uh, and activists. So uh, a magnificent effort. And, yes, it's flowed seamlessly into the digital campaign. Mm. And I, look, I, I just I just back that, actually. I think there was a sense of relief, right, amongst the gathered media, that they were they were dealing with someone that, that had their measure and, oh, this is what it used to be like, right? This is what it's it's like dealing with smart people. And, yeah, it's, it's someone that's, that understands how the game's played. There was a real sense of um, almost it was really old school. You know, you haven't seen that sort of thing for a while from a from a front bencher, from not the leader of the party. But it, it harks back to those days of the Hawke-Keating years where you had at least half a dozen cabinet ministers that could stand up and fire off on their feet like that on any one day. Um, Emma, if I can uh, turn to you now, let's talk a bit about uh, campaign policy announcements in the last seven days, um, and I'll get mm. you to just sort of lift up some of the things that stood out for you uh, in particular. But can I draw your attention initially to particularly um, what do we make of Matt Canavan and his remarks uh, about zero emissions targets and the inconsistencies that his position has with, with policy on this? Um, I, I just kind of found it amazing that the media did make a bigger deal of this because this is on the Labor side. We'll be hearing it for the next six days. Mm. Oh, look, I think I'm hearing a fair bit about it. I mean, obviously the, the Murdoch papers will want to play it right down. Um, if it was a, a policy split in Labor, you're right, it would be every front page, every uh, every opinion piece in every Murdoch tabloid for a week. Um, <coughs> but it's certainly, you know, on the ABC and other uh, other coverage has, has I think, rightly recognised that this is the guy... Basic, basically trying to blow up the campaign. I mean, he's from our perspective, he's just the gift that gives on, keeps on giving, although even more for the independent, teal independents, right? They must be rubbing their hands with glee. Um, it's typical Matt Canavan. You know, he's the most disingenuous bloke in politics. Uh, come, you know, cosplays as a minor, makes these ridiculous statements, uh, completely opportunistic statements off the back of uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, making out that, you know, that's going to be some kind of death knell for, for net zero by 2050, not that there are, you know, interim emergency power measures going on in the in Europe. Um, but in ter- it's the last thing Morrison needs uh, and, I, you know, a few of his National Party 
colleagues came out and gave him a pretty big smackdown pretty quickly. Um, but he's not going to stop. And he, he doubled down the next morning. You know, he doubled down the next morning and said, well, this is, this is true. We, you know, he is pro-coal. was famously when he resigned from the Cabinet said it had been great, uh, great time being the minister for the resources sector. Um, so he's he's not going to change. Um, I do think that uh, it is a gift for Labor. They can make quite a lot out of it. They need to be careful, obviously, as well with their own, uh, particularly in the Hunter and those seats that are on a knife edge there. But it completely reverses the charge that was made at the 2019 election that Labor was saying one thing to one group of constituents and another to another. Um, it's actually, there is an actual fact here that we have a significant split in the governing coalition between those moderate or, or urban-based Liberals and uh, some of these more extreme nationals in the region. So I think it is damaging for their campaign. Um, I think it's even more damaging for the country, uh, but I don't think we should expect Matt Canavan to change anytime soon. David, do you think that we... I mean, there was a word of caution there from Emma uh, about how we embrace this moment in the campaign. Um, do we exploit this or do we do we leave it alone and get back to talking about things that labour strong in terms of wage growth and free TAFE and childcare and all that kind of stuff? In, you're talking about the divisions inside the coalition? Climate yes, change. Yeah, on climate change itself, yeah. Yeah, no, I think the campaign has handled it um, astutely um, and it goes hand in glove with this issue of, where Morrison has tried to, you know, launch a scare campaign around uh, Labor's climate change policy, uh, a policy which is built around using um, the Coalition's own legislation. Um, and so, uh, and I think that's uh, a scare campaign which has been stillborn for the coalition, because the gallery called it out straight away, um, and, and and so it's struggling for momentum. And then this split inside the coalition, as different candidates in different parts of Australia said different things, and Labor was able to accuse them of saying one thing in Higgins and another thing in Inkler. Um, I think all of that has been dreadful for the coalition. We saw in 2019 Bill Shorten being accused of talking about Adani differently. Um, in different constituencies and how destructive that was. This is an echo of that on the coalition. So it's not been good for Morrison because it's taken them off message. Morrison has been talking about reinterpreting what his candidates have said and answering unwelcome questions about divisions in his own ranks. Labor hasn't over-exploited these targets of opportunity. It hasn't turned itself into you know, a Bob Brown tour of um, Queensland. <laughs> Um, and making sure that every working-class Australian uh, votes against the Greens. Um, Labor hasn't made any of those obvious mistakes. It's stuck to its guns and it simply pointed out that division is death and the government is divided and Labor's policy is the same as it was last December and is built on legislation that was actually passed through the parliament by the Abbott government. So I, I think Labor's handled this um, as well as you might hope um, and the pain has all been coalition pain. It was reported this week that uh, inflation is now at its highest uh, since 2009, which is obviously going to put pressure on the Reserve Bank to raise uh, interest rates uh, prior to Election Day. Uh, Emma, what problems do you foresee for the Libs on this particular issue? Oh, it's, it's dire. I mean, the last time uh, the RBA raised interest rates in an election campaign was about two weeks before 2007. Uh, in which not only did the Libs, the coalition lose, but the Prime Minister lost his seat. Um, I think it's it's very damaging. I mean, inflation is uh, it's high. It's and if the Reserve Bank doesn't move on Tuesday, then it would only be for political reasons. And I can't see the Reserve Bank making such a mistake. Um, I don't think it plays well. For Morrison, I mean, you've got to bear in mind there'll be some self-funded retirees who are their base anyway who will welcome it because it means stronger returns for them, maybe. Um, but then they're they're rusted on voters anyway. The people that are already waiting out there with baseball bats for this government will be hit hard by this. Um, we're looking at a lot of people who have taken on mortgage debt in the last two to three years. Uh, many of them with, uh, you know, very small deposits who could face negative equity um, if, if house prices start to 
slow slightly as a result of this interest rate rise, but more to the point at a time when the cost of living is going up, uh, you know, inflation's, what, 5.1% for the year. That's that's just CPI, though. The essential cost of living, if you look at, there's a 14% increase in childcare costs, 6.5% increase in fresh food. Uh, transport costs are up something like 8.9%. So the essentials, the you know, the non-discretionary spending items are going up hugely, and the cost of housing is a huge issue in the community. People are very, very concerned about unaffordable housing. Neither side really has a huge answer for them on this at this election. Um, but the interest rates going up uh, will scare a lot of people who have taken on debt. A lot of people, at the particularly those in the bottom sort of 40%, 50% of household incomes who are already really doing it tough, who didn't do that well out of the pandemic, who probably couldn't work from home, who couldn't save up a lot of money, um, and are really feeling the pinch, this will just add to that. Um, and it's arguable, well, it's very strongly arguable, actually, that a lot of this was avoidable, you know, that, that the um, the stimulus, while no one begrudged uh, the debt that was taken on to get us through the crisis, it wasn't particularly well-targeted or well-directed, and it certainly had some impact on this inflationary uh, pressure that we're seeing now. And we're now going to an election with another $1,500 tax offset for um, middle-income households uh, and from next year a massive uh, tax break for high-income households and that's just going to stoke the inflationary pressures even more. So I do think this is politically risky for the government. Um, Labor is so far playing it well, I think, tying it all to the cost of living. Everything's going up except your wages. That's been its consistent message. It feeds right into that message. Um, and what it really does at the same time as we've had the um, the government really, really stumbling this week on national security, it calls into question their two strongest uh, election election claims, which is they are the natural party of economic management and national security. And this week we've seen both those things start to crumble beneath them. And Morrison doesn't really have an answer. They don't have a, a, a persuasive or convincing way of, of stopping the bleeding in both these areas. David? It presents an interesting challenge for Labor because the idiom has always been that, you know, uh, if Labor's talking about the economy, it tends to be on a, uh, that's more fertile ground for uh, for the Tories. Um, how would you construct a narrative on this so it becomes a, a strength for, for, for Labor? Uh, well, it's an idiom that I've never really supported. Um, mm. I think when an adversary has strengths, you have to tackle those strengths. You're right that economic management is a brand strength for the Liberal Party, um, as too is national um, security. Um, but that means it's incumbent upon Labor to tackle rather than evade and avoid those strengths, in my judgment. And what we have here is a rolled gold opportunity to do just that on both fronts. This is a week where reality was gnawing at the foundation stones of the Liberal Party campaign. Um, and it's a diabolical threat, I think. Firstly, the Solomon Islands and Peter Dutton declaring war on China in 2040. Um, that, all, <laughs> that all played dreadfully for the coalition and is still playing dreadfully for the coalition. And so there goes one pillar of Scott Morrison's proposition um, that Australia is safer under a Chinese occupation organised by Scott. Um, and... <laughs> And the second pillar of his proposition is that he can manage the economy better and that just burst into flames before our eyes as well. And a shout-out here to Jim Chalmers. Um, as we said earlier in the conversation, he again he took centre stage at a moment that was completely appropriate given his role as Shadow Treasurer, so it didn't look out of place, but he uh, has put in, a, I think, an excellent performance in articulating Labor's economic position. And uh, we've, as Emma said, Labor has stuck to its guns and pointed out that this is a government that's riddled with waste um, and has mismanaged the economy and mismanaged our debt. Labor hasn't even got into, you know, second gear yet on this proposition. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about debt and waste from this government. Um, but it was just such a marvellous target of opportunity that we dived into it this week. So this week we saw, um, you know, capable Labor spokespeople really kicking the Liberal Party where it hurts um, and the foundation stones of their campaign trembling.
Hear, hear. Uh, indeed. Um, before we move on to campaign comms, uh, Emma, is there anything else what you want to lift up in terms of uh, policy announcements we may have missed this week? Yeah, look, I do, and I think it, it feeds into what we're just talking about, which is Labor's announcement of its Pacific uh, policy, which is a really... Um, it's a nuanced, thoughtful um, and comprehensive approach to the issue. So not only are we talking about increasing foreign aid and engagement in our region, uh, revamping the Pacific Islander Workers Program, the Pacific Workers for, uh, Program, bringing in that agricultural visa uh, into that program, which is very smart, not just smart policy but smart politics because it'll rile the gnats up but they uh, don't have a good reason to oppose it. Morrison, of course, has sort of tried to dismiss it as, oh, it's their Q&A solution to, to the Pacific crisis. Uh, it was a, an, a rare moment of bad campaigning from him. A, he uh, admitted that there's a bit of a crisis and he's sort of responsible for creating it. But what it points to is really the man's complete lack of understanding of regional diplomacy and international affairs. Um, of course, I worked for the communications minister when there was the brouhaha over the Australia network back in 2009-2010. Um, I won't go into that here, but fundamentally one of the last acts of the Gillard government was to legislate that only the ABC can take public funding for international broadcasting. That meant that the Abbott government, when it came in, couldn't give the Australia network to News Corp, as it wanted to do, and so they just shut the whole thing down. That was ABC's television arm, but what that also had an impact on was reducing the radio services in the region as well. And so for nine years now, we have not had that soft diplomatic voice in the region, and China actually purchased the shortwave radio signals that the ABC used to use in yeah. the region. So people that understand regional diplomacy know how much of a stuff-up this has been, and they can see in Labor's policy, uh, which has been very beautifully crafted, I think, to tackle not just the soft diplomacy arm, more funding for the ABC, get our voice into the region, more funding for uh, um, international uh, f foreign aid in the region, um, but also that sort of deeper engagement, bringing workers here and talking about giving um, those workers rights, uh, more rights than temp current temporary visa holders. It's a really good piece of foreign policy work and it's been developed, obviously, by Penny, by Richard Miles, who's got a strong interest in the subject, published an essay last year, Tides That Bind, about Australia in the Pacific. I think this is the substance matches the rhetoric on this this week. Um, and so not only do we have a... Uh, you know, a sort of geopolitical crisis on our doorstep with a possible Chinese base in the Solomon Islands, but a really thoughtful and obviously long-considered and well-developed policy response from Labor. David Finney's nodding his head furiously uh, in, <laughs> in agreement there. Yeah, I've nothing uh, to add to that. That's exactly right. Let's, uh, let's turn to the uh, campaign comms and, and, and strategy. The ALP uh, dropped their first 30-second uh, online negative or contrast ad earlier this week. Uh, David Fenney, uh, want to get your assessment uh, of the ad. Um, what did you glean from it in terms of the, sort of the key message and tone? This is We talked um, maybe two weeks ago about how disappointed we've been in the past of Labor Party negative campaigning and we were hoping for something better. Um, did we see something better in this ad? We did, and I burst into tears of relief when I saw it. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I think it's a it's a very capable effort, and we've seen Labor really hit its stride um, in digital and uh, free to air campaigning, um, and uh, with a whole series of different ads, all of which are very effective, and all of which have that same finish. You know, it's not my job. It's not my job. Um, uh, a first class effort, uh, which I think is a nice. Uh, adaptable format. It's a template which reminds the viewer um, of this government's failings and sums up the Prime Minister's attitude and performance in one very simple sentence. So um, a good effort. I was very pleased to see it um, and I've seen it now rolling across all sorts of platforms um, and in all sorts of different guises, um, but always with that same template, that same finish. So I think it's a very effective communication um, and uh, ticks all the boxes. I'm conscious of, uh, of the time for today because I know that uh, both of you guys have to sort of run off um, at the top of the hour, so I might just move through some of the uh, other uh, topics that we wanted to talk about uh, on today's show. We had uh, 
In terms of polling, we had two more polls come out this week, one from Ipsos and one from uh, NewsPoll. Uh, for those of you out there that missed it, uh, the uh, news poll, YouGov uh, poll had the Liberals on a primary of 36, Labor on a primary of 37, um, and uh, the 2PP of 47.53 to Labor, and there was a Ipsos poll that came out as well, which was 32 primary to Liberals, 34 primary to Labor, which I think was a one-point shift in favour of the Conservatives but has a 2PP on 45.55 to Labor. Um, David, to you first, thoughts on, on, on that poll, that, that, those two polls that came out this week? Well, firstly, hats off to Benson at The Australian who managed to give that poll the headline, Prime Minister ex expands his lead. <laughs> it's, it's a very bad poll for the Coalition. The Labor's primary vote is par for the course, but nonetheless disappointing. The real issue here is the Coalition's primary vote. Um, they cannot afford to be in the 30s, um, and they are um, 35, 36, depending on which poll you're looking at, and that's killing their two-party preferred vote. Um, so the, the polls, um, to the extent that they're worth anything, um, show a continuing trajectory, and you can see this, um, I think, reflected in the increasingly shrill character of what you're getting out of News Corporation um, as they've watched the Prime Minister not be able to turn the tide or make a dent on this stubborn trajectory um, showing a Labor vote. It hasn't really shifted over the course of the campaign. Labor's primary vote, we hope, will um, strengthen as the other votes um, disappear. Um, but fundamentally, the trajectories remain the same. And the failure of the Prime Minister to turn his government's um, stocks around, I think, is feeding an increasingly frenetic tone out of News Corp. One of the things I um, will be interesting to watch, I think we're maybe 12 days away from pre-poll opening, uh, watching the uh, polling uh, from the moment that pre-poll opens and just keeping track of that, either the undecided or the other <laughs> pile because that number will fall because eventually people start getting surveyed that have voted and now indicate who they voted for as opposed to who they were likely to vote for. Um, one thing that we've no we noticed in the 2018 Victorian state election campaign in our, on our track poll um, in a number of sort of seats that we were not worried about, but certainly um, uh, the, the Liberal Party primary was incredibly low. Ours was slightly higher than, say, you know, four years earlier, but this other was quite high. But then as soon as voting started, that other number just started to fall off a cliff and those votes then started to pile onto, onto the Labor primary and then eventually get, getting us those particular seats that we were looking at. So I just think it'd be interesting to see once folks start voting, what happens with that other? And you're, yeah, I'm completely with you, David, that, that primary vote for the Liberal Party is a bigger concern than it is for, for, uh, for, for Labor. Uh, Emma, any of your thoughts on the polls we saw this week? Uh, yeah, look, I agree with all you've both said. I think that it is impossible for the coalition to form at uh, least a majority government with uh, with a primary vote in the mid 30s. Um, Labor's own news poll uh, is back up to 37. Um, I think again, I think that's probably a, a little bit soft. The polls are, you know, notoriously difficult to read. Um, I'll be interested to see what Essential comes out with next week. Of course, um, their their um, modelling being a bit different, still having those undecideds not feeding through. Um, but look, I think the polls, as David said, they do reflect the trajectory. They are stronger for Labor at this point in the campaign than they were in 2019. Um, what's going to be interesting, though, as we've said in the last couple of weeks as well, is it's it's a seat-by-seat seat play. So these national polls don't necessarily show us how, for example, those um, One Nation or Palmer United, United Australia Party, as he is now, uh, preferences are going to flow through in some of those key marginals in Queensland and New South Wales, and how the Greens are going to play is going to be very interesting at this election. Um, they tend to have their biggest influence in terms of uh, their preference flows in some of the seats that are being targeted by independents. Um, 
And the, the seats that they are putting a lot of effort into, they are really make or break seats for the Greens. So I'm going to be particularly interested to see what happens to the Greens' primary vote on the night of the election. I expect it to be quite a bit softer than is showing up in these polls here because I think a lot of where their primary vote usually comes from on election day itself, there'll be a lot of those voters that would usually vote Green in the inner cities in Sydney and Melbourne in particular who will vote strategically for an independent where possible and that could affect their primary on the night. Yeah, they're going to get belted. Um, sticky <laughs> with you, uh, sticky with you. I mean, normally they sit around 13% in the pre-election polls and then election yeah. day always turns up to about 9 or 10. I reckon it's going to be lower than that. I think it's going to be a, this campaign's going to be a disaster for the Greens. Um, sticking with you, Sticking with you, Emma, um, media this week, uh, what did you see from uh, the fourth estate? Um Pretty good this week. I think I think going back to, you know, the Jason Clare press conference kind of gave everyone a bit of a wake-up call um, and there's been a bit of a, an attitude change. In the first 24 hours when Elbow was announced he was sick, there was, oh, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to the Labor Party and within 48 hours that attitude had shifted quite a bit as they saw the team performing. Other interesting thing this week is when, um, you know, Morrison, Canavan, others, um, you know, one of the heads of the big fossil companies tried to portray Labor's uh, reliance on the um, safeguard mechanisms in its climate policy as a sneaky return of the carbon tax. That was Ooh. shot down, actually, by quite a few journalists, Patricia Carvelis, um, uh, Virginia Trioli, mainly on the ABC, but saying, look, fool us once, shame on you, fool us twice, shame on me. The media fell for this in, in 2010. We fell for this in 2013, that it was a carbon tax and it wasn't, it was a carbon price. Um, and so there's... I think, a, a quite refreshing and encouraging uh, tendency of the, of the media for largely self-interested regions, but to say, mea culpa, we're not going to get that wrong again. So we're not going to be um, fooled by that kind of play. So that, that again, was reassuring. Um, but then there are others that have, have lived up to their usual uh, shenanigans, primarily in the News Corp stable. Uh, nice call back to a uh, quote from George W. Bush as well there. That was beautiful. Um, David, uh, yourself, your thoughts on the media this week? And do you have a nomination? I think you may have a nomination for uh, Tory with a tie bloke because you've called out Simon Benson's performance. Uh, yeah, but he's not my nominee. I, I, I think the media this week enjoyed the change of pace and enjoyed um, the sort of more shifting parts to the story. Um, covering the campaign this week would have been more interesting, quite frankly, and ultimately journalists understand that it's all about them. Um, in terms of who our votes, who my vote is for Tory with a typewriter, um, I'm going to go for um, that journalist of record, um, Shari Marks and oh. News Corp stable. You'll it's remember... furious agreement, David. At the end of last week when Solomon Island started to... Um, blow up in the government's face and they obviously understood immediately what a dire threat this was to their credibility, you know, their khaki election campaign and they were looking like Dad's army. <laughs> so um, those journalists who are utterly integrated into the coalition campaign, um, which for shorthand we'll call News Corp, um, did everything they could to deflect and uh, defer that damage away from Morrison. So we saw the News Corps hit squad led by Sherry Markson come out and say that some of the, um, you know, diplomatically formal utterances Richard Miles had made um, concerning China represented, you know, an, a, a grievous assault on Australian sovereignty, um, notwithstanding the fact that any speech from any government MP um, would reveal precisely the same words. Um, and so we saw this concocted effort to try and say that, you know, Labor was soft on communism, Richard was a Manchurian candidate, um, and these these words are quite chilling. Um, well, what a nonsense. And uh, it didn't stop the Solomon Islands exploding in the Prime Minister's face. It didn't stop the Prime Minister running away from the, the media on Saturday. Um, and it was a terrifically noble suicide effort from Shari and the hit squad, but it didn't change a thing. So my, my votes for her... Um, she didn't succeed in the mission um, that the coalition headquarters gave her, but she gave it her best shot. Uh, Emma, it sounds like you're going to add your vote to show Ms. Sherry Marks as it's, well. Is that it's unanimous this week. I, I came prepared to uh, say exactly the same thing. Sherry <laughs> gave it gave it her all, 
Um, it was a bit of a, you know, she 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 had the hand grenade, she took out the pin and she forgot to throw it all the way, I think. Um, but uh, the, the thing about Shari is she's an absolutely first-class tabloid journalist, isn't she? She'd have made it in Fleet Street in the 80s. She's, she's very, very good at what she does. Sadly, I don't think what she does is, is of much value to us as a democracy. Um, but it was not weighed down by facts, is she? <laughs> it's not weighed down by facts or even by uh, much coherence, usually. Um, and I'd just like, you know, to add here, to, to try and paint Richard Miles again as a Manchurian candidate, it didn't work last time. It's not going to work again. Richard is very well respected in the diplomatic community, very well respected in defence circles and in strategic policy. Very few people in the parliament that have thought as much about our relationship with China, our role in the Pacific as Richard, uh, trying to make out that he's somehow... Uh, you know, some some deep state operative of, of the Chinese Communist Party. Anyone who has met the man laughs at that. So you're not going to get the usual reliable voices uh, coming out to, to back up a story like that. And I think what's really interesting this week is just how circumspect uh, the voices from Aspie and others have been around the Pacific issue, but how uh, there's absolutely no ability of the cheer squad in the Murdoch press to get anyone on the record to back them up. And so the story uh, sank like a stone. Well, congratulations to uh, Sherry Markson because uh, she's now on top of the table with uh, two votes in our Tory with a typewriter award. I wonder if she'll take it out on election day. Um, <laughs> final question to both of you. Uh, who, uh, who won the week starting with uh, you, Anna? Oh, Labor won the week this week, for sure, um, partly because Morrison lost it, um, comprehensively lost it over national security and economics, which is his uh, the two things that he thinks he can play strongman on. Um, and I think Labor won it because they responded very well. They had their policies ready to go. They had their lines ready to go. They did not allow themselves to be flustered by this. They did not respond to the typical attacks. They remained calm and informed and authoritative on these issues. Um, and so I think Labor comprehensively won this week on the other Excellent. on the other side's turf too. Excellent, David. Yes, it was a very solid week for Labor this week, um, and I think the momentum is now flowing in Labor's way. Um, these were two critical foundation stones of the coalition's campaign, and the coalition looked and sounded dreadful on them um, this week. Uh, and even as they stumbled into a climate change argument. Um, and their climate tax um, scare campaign, that kind of dribbled away into nothing as well. So, uh, you know, good luck is the reward of hard work. Um, we saw uh, all of the various Labor characters who were called upon to serve this week do a first-class job. It speaks very well for what kind of government we might have, God willing, after May the 21st. Um, a very solid week for Labor. Fantastic. Emma, David, once again, thank you for your time and your contribution to the podcast this week. Uh, and to all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us. And don't forget uh, to, the best thing that you can do in the remaining 20-odd uh, days of this campaign is to get out there and knock on doors to and speak with um, highly persuadable or undecided voters in those marginal seats across the country. And to volunteer, just go to the ALP website, which is alp.org.au, and volunteer your time. Thanks very much for listening. Hey there, thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.